Good morning uh, one more time. Thanks so much. It's my last time of being with you this morning, but um, really gr- grateful for your attention and interest and lots of conversations I've had with you around and about the place. Um, if you're just joining us, if this is the first one of these you've been to, for whatever reason, um, we've been looking, are doing a series on sexuality, really, and human sexuality. And Joel began on the first day and talked about really the connection between our sexuality and our view of God and our worship of God and how those are related. And on the second day, I looked at the connection between sexuality and creation and talked about how this sexuality, man and woman, is really about that, the union of heaven and earth. Then yesterday, we looked at sexuality and the gospel and looked at how human sexuality puts on display the union of Jesus and the church and it mirrors the gospel to an incredible degree. It's deliberately designed in a way that would show us what Jesus does for us and how we respond to him. And particularly in marriage, although single people express that in a variety of ways, which we touched on as well. And so there's a beautiful complementarity between maleness and femaleness that demonstrates not just something about the universe and the future destiny of all things, but also of what Jesus has done for us. And we've traced throughout really the ways in which the world we're in has made sexuality smaller and therefore made it, as I said yesterday, like a mile wide and an inch deep. So everybody can play and everyone can express sexuality in whatever way they want. But in doing that, it has made what sex actually is extremely small and very trivial in comparison to this transcendent, otherworldly, spiritual vision of sexuality you find in the scriptures. And what we're going to do this morning is really wrap this thing up by looking at sexuality and discipleship, which is basically the so what of what we've been saying. So I've deliberately not engaged with a lot of the objections and questions to some of this stuff in the first two talks, because I wanted not to, just to show that the biblical vision of sexuality is true, but that it's beautiful. I want people to see that. I think a lot of people in our generation know that there is something intellectually compelling or academically persuasive about a vision of sexuality that restricts it to a man and a woman in marriage. But they don't think that vision is beautiful. They don't see why it's good. They just think it might be right, but they feel a little bit annoyed about it. And so what I'm trying to do is help us see why it's beautiful. Why the mystery and spirituality and transcendence of what sexuality is about is a good thing for us. It's a gospel thing and not just an annoying set of rules like don't step on the grass or something like that. This is the way in which human beings are designed to function at our height, whether we are married or single, whether we are gay or straight. We are, this vision of sexuality is intended to lift us, whether we are partaking insects at the time or not. It's intended to put something on display that is deeper and higher than we are. And so this morning, we're going to look at sexuality and discipleship and look at some of the questions. But in many ways, it's worth saying at the outset that the Christian view of sexuality, in terms of what we do about it now, is actually very straightforward. And it's just like the Christian vision of the rest of the Christian life. God loves everybody, or everybody has sinned. Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died and then rise again to defeat the power of sin and death in our lives and give us his spirit to enable us to live differently. And God, in response to that, wants everybody to repent of their sins, bury their old lives in baptism and trust him for a new and better way. That's true of 
all kinds of sins. That's true of the way we approach our money, the way we approach our language, the way we think, the way we do everything in life, and it is also therefore true of our sexuality. So there's nothing particularly difficult in an intellectual sense about the Christian response to what we've been saying over these last two days, three days. It's very clear. God loves you. Whatever sexual preference you have, whatever sexual orientation you have, whatever sexual sin is in your past or in your present. Some of us have been sexually sinful in the last few hours. God loves you. God loves you and he loves me despite all of the sexual failings. Whatever sexual preference or orientation you have, you may never have known what it's like to be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex and you may have been attracted in some way to people of the same sex as you for the last 10 years. You may never have known anything different. God loves you. You may spend your, you may be sitting here fighting the temptation not to think about sex even as I'm speaking throughout. And in fact, for you, listening to a series on this just makes you think about sex all the time. And it's very difficult for you to think about anything else. God loves you. That's, that's always true, right? The second thing to say is it's always true that all of us have sinned. Whether you are gay or straight or married or single or thinking about sex all the time or not really that interested at this point, Everybody has sinned. You could be the most upstanding, well-presented, never really put a foot wrong, never even thought lustfully about another person kind of Christian, and you've still sinned. And you could be the most promiscuous person. You could be a person who thinks, you know, every time you've mentioned any sexual sin in the course of this series, I've done it. Tick, tick, tick. Yeah, gay sex, done that. Straight sex, done that. Abortion, done that. I have done it all. And all of us, in that sense, are loved by God. And all of us are sinners and need to repent. And all of us have the death of Jesus able to count for us if we trust in him. And all of us have his righteous life possible to be given to us as a gift in exchange for the death we give him. Like the wedding thing we saw yesterday, I die to my old name and I take on his. And all of us need the power of the Spirit to live a righteous life. And all of us need to repent and trust him for a new one. So in many ways, we are all in the same boat. Everyone in this room However promiscuous you are, however many sexual partners you've had, however much you've thought about sex, whatever kind of preferences you have, we are all in the same boat. And following Jesus for all of us means exactly the same thing. Dying to the old us, embracing a new life in him, being, receiving his forgiveness, living resurrection life by the power of his spirit. But in our culture, sex is the closest thing we really have to a God And so many people find a lot of what I've been saying very difficult. And they have some questions and some objections which they want to push back against what I'm saying. There's a whole list of them. And I spend quite a lot of my life actually writing about them and discussing them and debating them with people. And this morning I just want to choose six which often come up and address them briefly before concluding by talking about what the shape of following Jesus actually is and what it looks like for those of us who may have sinned or be about to sin sexually. So six questions and objections which come back because of the culture we're in. Sex is the God of our day, probably the highest God of our day. The way you know that is because it's the thing without which people don't think they can be happy. I think people in our culture find it easier to imagine being happy without having money than being happy without having sex. That's a good sign that we're dealing with a God. We are dealing with the idol of the age. Anyway. Six questions. First question. Does that mean, does all of this thing you've said, does it mean that God hates people who don't live that way? 
Does it mean that God hates people who don't express their sexuality either through singleness and not having sex with anybody or through marriage to somebody of the opposite sex? Does it mean that God hates everybody else? And the answer is no, not at all. Because God loves, as I've just said, the most promiscuous gay person and the most judgmental straight person enough to send his son to die on a cross for us. It doesn't mean God hates anybody. The only, thing, the only reason it might ever mean that, the only way you could possibly conclude that God hated people for what they'd done is if you find it impossible to imagine that God could dislike strongly something you do and love you at the same time. The phrase that's often used for this, love the sinner, hate the sin. A lot of people in our generation find it hard to imagine how anybody could ever do that. Because we say, yes, but for you to hate this thing I do means you must hate me. And it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't, and the reason you already know that it doesn't, is because there is somebody of whom you already hate the sin and love the sinner. There's someone of whom you've probably already found that to be true, and it's yourself. I love me. I think I'm great. I just think I'm a wonderful guy, and whenever I get into a, a mistake, I ever make a mistake, I mess something up, I sin, I fall, my instinct is to tell the story in a way that makes me the hero. I think I'm great. I love Andrew. I hate a lot of the things that I've done. I really, I hate them more than you do. You don't know what they are. I, I hate them, I regret them, I struggle with them. Sometimes I try and rationalize them, but I still know they're wrong. And I do daily battle against the things I've done and find myself hating them. I hate the grumbling that comes in me. I hate the anger that flares within me. I hate lust that emerges. I hate all the sins that are in my, a part of my life and history. And yet I still love me. So I know, and so do you, that it is very possible to love a person and hate the sin of that person. So whenever anybody says to me, yes, but for you, to, for you to dislike my sin is to dislike me, I'd say, you know that's not true because you make exactly that allowance for yourself. And you should. It's okay. God does that. I do it for my friends. I can hate things. You ever met somebody who's cheating on somebody else and you can find yourself loving them and hating what they're doing simultaneously? It's very easy. We do it all the time. God does it. God loves you. He hates sin. And he doesn't find any sort of freakish um, ambiguity to being able to do those things at the same time. He loves you. He hates sin. And we all do that all the time. So no, God does not hate you if you don't express your sexuality in that way. But he does call you to repent of it and to trust him for a better way. So that's the first question. Does, Does God mean God hates people who don't live that way? Second question. Is or is it not the case that sexuality is part of my identity? Is that part of the wiring of me as a human soul? Is my sexuality part of my identity? And I would say, yes and no. Yes, your sexuality is part of you in the sense that our culture causes us to define ourselves almost primarily in terms of our sexual preference because sex is a god of the day. So the chances are that most people in here will already have a sense of their self that involves sexuality being part of it. Your sexual preference or orientation or history is likely to be quite a large part of your self-understanding because you live, most of you, in Britain today. And because of that, you'll find that it just expresses itself in very natural ways in the way you think about what it means to be you. In many cultures, in many parts of the world, that's not the case. Sexuality is not, in, in the ancient world, when the Bible was written, 
it wasn't really thought of that way. It was quite normal for people to say, no, I'm, I'm married to a person of the opposite sex, and I sometimes have affairs with young boys. That was quite, actually quite normal in the ancient world. I'm not saying that's right at all. I'm just saying they wouldn't necessarily have thought, I have a sexuality which is fixed and is a part of me. But in a sense, it is part of your identity today because it's the way that our culture trains you to think. So in that sense, yes. But in a very important and much more important sense, no. Your sexuality is not part of your identity in that when you become a member of Christ, when you become part of him, he becomes your identity and the old you crumbles and no longer becomes part of the new you. And so actually for you to be a believer is for you to have been transferred from one identity into another. For you to have been married to Christ, as we saw yesterday in a way, is for you to die to your old name and embrace a new one. And in that sense, which is far more important, no, your sexuality is not part of your identity. Being in Christ is your identity. I had a wonderful privilege of sitting down with a couple of gay friends of mine, talking to them. And I just think sometimes you see this with gay people more clearly than with young people who are either not sure or who are straight or would self-identify that way. And I was talking to them, and they were working through issues about their future relationship. And one of them just made this astonishing statement halfway through, and just, you know, gay background, gay lifestyle, etc. And he just came to the point, he just said, you know what, I think I've just come to realize I am not a gay man. I'm not a straight man. I'm a child of God. And as he said it, I thought, that is as close a summary to identity in Christ as you could possibly hear, and it's from a gay man who's sitting there trying to figure out his future identity and future lifestyle. He's just saying, that doesn't define me. Any more than it would be true to say that because I, I don't know, I go around burping sometimes means that I'm a burper, right? That's my life. I do that. It doesn't define you. What defines you is you are united with Christ and a child of God. And I found that to be true in my story. And I know many in here have found that too. So is my sexuality part of my identity? Well, kind of yes, because that's the way the world thinks, but mainly no, because that's not what who Jesus says you are. Question three. Who do you think you are, married, straight man, to talk like this? I had that, first time I had that, it was in a Christian conference where I was having a Q&A, um, and it was a Christian conference where a lot of people who come are quite angry about this issue, and they were really going for me about it. There were some very angry lesbians just shouting at me about this. How dare you talk like this, you smug, straight, white, married man? How could you possibly have the authority to say anything like that? And the answer I give, obviously, is I don't have any authority in myself to make that statement, but I really do think Jesus does. I really do. I believe God in his word has the authority to to tell us whatever he likes. And I believe God has the authority to tell you what is and is not acceptable because he created the world in complementary pairs, heaven and earth, male and female, penis and vagina. God used the marriage of male and female to symbolize Christ and the church, and he did that on purpose. And Jesus also said some pretty fiery things about sexual immorality of all types. Not just, I'm not just talking about gay sex, I'm talking about any sex outside of marriage between man and a woman. Jesus said some fiery things about it, both in the Gospels and in Revelation, if you read it. So no, I don't think I get to say, you cannot do this, or this is wrong. That's on my own authority. That's not where the power comes from. But I think God does. And my job and your job as ambassadors of God, ambassadors of Christ, sent into the world to announce the news that Jesus is risen, one of the things we do, 
Not, it's not the main thing by any means, but one of the things we do is when people say, so what does that mean for my sexuality? We say, well, God would have you live either like this in celibate singleness or like this in marriage between a man and a woman. That's, the se- that's how sexuality is to be expressed and both are wonderful. The other things, other expressions of it, many of which many of us in the tent have experienced, those other things are off limits for somebody who wants to follow and honor Jesus. They're forgivable. We repent, we die to them, we rise again to a new life and God forgives us because he's loving and forgiving and gracious. But those things are not the way we should live. And I think, I can't say that, but God can. So I do as a representative and spokesman for him, just like any of you can as well. Question four. This one might, you might get this one at school. Is sexuality genetic or environmental? Ever thought that? Ever wondered that? Is sexuality genetic? Is it in your genes or is it just from your environment? Well, the answer is, I don't know, but I don't think it matters. Here's why I'm saying that, right? The question's often asked by somebody who would say, if it's genetic, then I don't have any responsibility for it and I can do whatever my genes lead me to do. And if it's environmental, then it's something I can change. And I just don't buy that that's true at all. I think lots of things are partly contributed by genetics and you can still repent of them. And lots of things are partly contributed to by your environment and you will still find them very difficult to break. I just don't think it's true that genetic things are not your responsibility and environmental things are. I think that's nonsense. And there's a lot of good reasons to think that it is. So when you find the quest for the gay gene or the straight gene, say even if they found one, which they haven't, but even if they did, I don't think it would make very much difference to the way I would counsel people to live. Because I don't think whether temptation is genetic or environmental has anything to do with whether or not it's okay to follow it. So here's an example. I, um, you ever come across the, newspaper, the London local newspaper Metro that you read in the morning? You know, going on the train or whatever, there's copies of Metro everywhere. And I was reading Metro. I, admittedly, it's not a very high-powered publication. But I was reading it on the way in uh, one day a couple of years back. And it said, quite this scientific study that had been done that said, and I'm going to ask all the men in this room not to look at their hands just for a moment, okay? Maybe sit on them or something, okay? Because you'll be tempted otherwise. But they said, there is a very close correspondence genetically between the strength of a man's sex drive and the disparity in length between his fourth and second fingers. This is the claim. And what it said, I'm not joking. And what it said was that if your two fingers are of approximately the same length, your fourth and your second fingers then you have an average sex drive. If your second finger is a lot higher than your fourth, you have a lower than average sex drive. If your fourth finger is a lot higher than your second, then you have a higher than average sex drive. Okay? That was the claim. Now, I don't know for sure whether it's true, but let's say it is. Would that mean that men with unusually long fourth fingers were okay to have several wives or sexual partners? Of course not. I have. Right? You can see my hand, I imagine, there. My fourth finger is a lot longer than my second finger. Young men, you can now look at your hand because, well, basically you all already are, let's be honest. Um, let's, you can have a look and compare. Now, if this thing in Metro is true, I am genetically hardwired with a higher sex drive than a lot of people in this room. Does that mean that I'm okay to say to my wife, do you know what? I, I enjoy our sexual relationship, but I'm just genetically hardwired to need more than you want to give me, so I'm just going to have a few other partners as well. How do you feel about that? Of course not. There might well be a genetic predisposition in me to commit sexual immorality more than there is for some other men in this room. There probably is. Does that mean it's okay for me to live on it? No. 
The same would be true of alcoholism. Alcoholism clearly has a genetic component. Alcoholics would be the first people to tell you that doesn't mean it's okay for them to drink. That's how they fight it. They say, I know I am wired to do this. That's why I don't. Western people probably are more predisposed to greed because of where we live. Extroverts, people with big mouths, are more probably more predisposed to slander and gossip than very quiet, shy people. Does that mean those things are okay? No. I am a greedy person with a high sex drive who lives in the West and is an extrovert. Does that mean that it's okay for me to, go- to be a gossiping, promiscuous so-and-so? Of course not. It means I need to repent just like everybody else and ask for the Spirit's help to stand firm in the face of this temptation. It doesn't, even if sexuality is genetic, I don't think that makes any difference to the extent to which you have to fight the temptation as a child of God. Question five. Does that mean you are sentencing unmarried people to a life of being alone? Absolutely not. Being single and being alone are in no way the same thing. Can you hear me at the back? Being single and being alone are not the same thing. It is so important to understand that. How many people, just clap in this room if you are currently single, okay? Just clap in this room. Right, that's a lot of people. You are not alone. You are not alone. You are in a massive international family of two billion people. You have community all around you. Many of you probably do have days when you do feel sad and alone, of course. And I do too, and I'm married. That happens in, the, in life. That's a result of fallen human creation. But you are not alone. Singleness is a glorious way of expressing the wisdom of God in and through this life. Paul said it was even better than being married. Jesus was single. Paul was single, as we said yesterday. Jeremiah was single. John the Baptist was single. Many, many great Christian leaders have been single. John Stott was single. The Pope is single. Mike Pilevacci coming tonight is single. You can ask him about it. There are a lot of people who live totally satisfied, full Christian lives as single people. And a lot of people in marriages who feel alone and desolate. Being single and being alone are not the same thing. Please don't let anybody tell you that they are. It's a lie and it's out to get you. Stand strong. Just say, that is not true. I don't receive that at all. Question six. Final question for now and then we're going to look at how, the, how following Jesus actually works when it comes to a point of repentance. Question six. If I am here today and I am attracted to people of the same sex as me, which as I say, when I was your age, I was... But when I was your age, nobody talked about it in conferences, right? If I am, what kind of resources are there that can help? What can I do? Okay, I'll give you a few different suggestions. One, there are several outstanding books on this subject written by people who are themselves attracted to people of the same sex. You may have come across some of these. I have a few here. These are all in the bookshop. Sam Alberry's book, Sam has been with us here before. He's a friend of mine. He's an outstandingly wise leader who is single and attracted to guys, people of the same sex. His book, Is God Anti-Gay? Wonderful. Short, readable, clear, very pastorally helpful. This is a great, great take on it. This book will probably help you. Wes Hill, Washed and Waiting. Wes is one of the smartest Christian evangelicals anywhere in the world. He's a New Testament professor. He's an incredibly wise guy. He is a same-sex attracted man. He is a single man. And he is extremely sharp and helpful. His book, Washed and Waiting, if you read it, will help you. Just I, What I tend to do is flick through the book and think, what kind of reading level am I and what kind of reading level is this? These two are both great. Third one for now, 
Ed Shaw, the plausibility problem. Ed Shaw has been here in the last few years at New Day as well. This book is also excellent. And this one is probably the most relevant of the three to somebody who is not attracted to someone of the same sex, but wants to know how to think about it well as a believer. All three of them will help you, but this one perhaps most of all. So there are some great books. There are some great websites www.livingout.org is the website that Sam and Ed and others have set up, livingout.org, to help share their stories of how to live as a gay person or as a same-sex attracted person, how to live the Christian life. They are, it's full of helpful resources. Wesley also, similarly, spiritualfriendship.org. Those are slightly different angle on things, but again, very, very helpful resources. A bit more academic, that one. Um, and so there will be, there's lots of stuff out there and online, and... This afternoon, and this is true for people with questions about anything I'm saying, this afternoon we've got a panel discussion, I think it's in here, which is going to be about sex and sexuality and how we think wisely and how we apply some of the things we've been saying. And if none of those things, all of those things will help you, but you may also find that stopping somebody who is wrestling with the issue in your own church or who has or who will pastor you through it, talking to a leader, talking to an elder, talking to me, will probably help as well. So those are six questions I often get asked, but that's not where I want to end. Where I want to end is just by briefly showing you what following Jesus actually costs you. And I want to do that by looking very briefly now at Matthew chapter 13, just three verses in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Can you say that with me? All that he has. You didn't say it with me. All that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. Jesus' sales pitch. He's just the most terrible salesman in the world. Jesus' sales pitch is, when you find the kingdom, you discover something valuable that you weren't expecting. And you think, wow, this has just landed in my lap. What a glorious gift. And just as people are doing the jig and thinking, yes, 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 I've got this amazing gift. Wow, the treasure, the pearl, wow. You then realize, in order to take hold of this beautiful gift God has given you, you have to sell all that you have. Every last thing, every last penny, every last moment of your worldly possessions. You have to, in a sense, die to yourself in order to get it. People find that really hard to understand. People say, but the gospel is free. How could the kingdom of God be free and cost you everything? How is that possible? Surely things are either free and cost you nothing, or they're expensive and they cost you everything. Some things aren't. Some things are free gifts of grace which you cannot take hold of while you're still holding on to a load of other stuff. And the only way of taking hold of it is to get rid of them. Love in marriage is like that. I, I have to renounce my whole life in order to be able to get married to Rachel. She's free to me. She's amazing. I don't deserve her. But in order for me to take hold of her love and relationship with her, I have to get rid of everything else. I have to be prepared to give up everything. Some things in life are like that. In fact, most of the things that really matter are like that. And I want to illustrate that point, and I'm going to ask my friend Gary to come on out here. Gary is from Eastbourne. A lot of people not from Eastbourne are clapping that, which is wonderful, okay? So Gary, do you want to stand there and not too much further? 
because we've got to do something here. And Ben is going to pile Gary up with a whole load of things that Gary has uh, that he's going to have to decide in a moment whether he wants to keep or not. Okay, I want to illustrate the idea that the kingdom of heaven is a free gift that costs you everything. And then in a moment, we, when we talk through that, we're going to have a time to respond to that in a moment as we're singing. And we're going to try... I'm, I want to push the question for you that Liv was asking the other night. Are you prepared to die, to give up everything to follow Jesus? This gospel is so glorious. It's so free. And as like many great gifts, in order to take hold of it, I have to give up everything I have. And so I would tell you, yes, it does. In many ways, it does cost you an enormous amount to be a gay person who follows Jesus. Because you are at that point saying, do you want to actually begin to pile them up with these things? You are at that moment saying, if you're a gay person who follows Jesus, I am prioritizing Jesus over my desires to have sex and have a family. I am choosing him. I have met, I've had gay people come up to me at conferences and saying, uh, this one woman, she came up and she said, I'm a, as a lesbian, I am so grateful for what you just said about the gospel because I've done that. And I was, I was in a civil partnership with a woman and we had a kid together and I knew that the right thing when I became a believer was to leave that relationship and figure out how we look after the child together. That's costly. And then she said, and my partner was so amazed at the change in me that she went on an alpha course and got saved as well and we're now both here at this conference. And when I heard that, I thought, that is costly. You have understood the cost of following Jesus more than almost any straight person I know. Well done, good and faithful woman. You have understood what Jesus meant when he said, sell everything you have and then take hold of it. Now, Gary is bricked up here with lots and lots of things that he thinks are very, very valuable. He's got an old life. He's got lots of bits and pieces. You and I may not think that they're very valuable at all, but he, for him, they matter. They might be his job. They might be his future ambition to get married and have a family. They might be a particular person he's got his eye on. They may be sexual satisfaction. They may be lots of things. But he has got a whole bunch of things in his life that he is precious about. He values. He cares about them. And he is about to be presented with something that is far more valuable than any of those, which is this glass crystal decanter that I was given on my wedding day by a friend of mine who is a professor in the United States. And this decanter, which I'm now about to give to Gary, is free. It's a gift I'm going to give him. I'm going to give it to him irrespective of whether he's ever paid for it, which he hasn't, or deserves it, which he doesn't. But I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to throw it across the stage to him. And he is going to make a decision while the decanter is in midair, whether he thinks that it is worth dropping all that he has in order to get it. You will notice when he does that the act of dropping all that he has does not earn him or pay for the crystal decanter. But what it does do is to get rid of all of the things that might stop him from taking hold of it and possessing it and benefiting from it. Now, before I do that, I want you to see that there is a moment in all of our lives, and for some of you, it may be today, in which that decision with the decanter in midair has to take place. You realize that Jesus is offering you something that is thoroughly beautiful. And you realize that you have a lot of things in your life that are valuable to you, that in order to take hold of the gospel and to follow Jesus, you are gonna have to drop. They don't deserve or earn the decanter or the gospel. But what they do is they, they obstruct you from taking it unless you drop them. And for some people today, 
is that day. For some of you, that is going to be a decision you have to make. I am choosing to let go of all of that stuff. And I have a lot of issues like that. I have a lot of things in my world which I want and I value and I prize. But I want to drop them all because Jesus is better. And when you make that decision, you take hold of something of infinite value. The pearl of great price. The treasure hidden in a field. The glass decanter instead of the soft blocks. And when you do, you never look back. But it costs you. It costs you. Jesus challenged a lot of people like this. He challenged a rich young man and said, you have to sell everything you have. And he went away sad because he had a lot of possessions. That's the decision he had to make. That's the decision you have to make. It's the decision Harry Potter had to make, right? If I'm going to destroy Voldemort, sorry, plot plot spoiler, if I'm going to destroy Voldemort, because there is a bit of him in me, I'm going to have to die in order to get free of what he has made me become. And it's only in death that I will find freedom. You and I find that. That's why Christian symbols involve death so much of the time. That's why marriage involves dying to your old life and taking on a new one. That's why baptism involves burying the old life. That's why the Lord's Supper involves sharing in symbols of death. Because Christians know you have to die to the old you to take on his life. Otherwise you can't. Only dead people can be risen from the dead. And Gary, like you, like Harry Potter, and like the rich young ruler, and like many, many billions of people in history, has to decide, am I going to drop it to take hold of this free gift that costs me everything? So we're going to see if he does. And I'm going to stand at a distance. Uh, This is the furthest away I've ever done this, right? And it's a little slippery because a little bit of whiskey that I didn't realize was still in there has actually fallen out. So I'm going to hold it from this end. This is a very, very high-risk operation, right? So what we'll do, what's the best way of doing this? I'm just going to dry my hands momentarily because I don't want this to go wrong. Gary might decide to drop it or he might try and catch it and drop it. So let's hope he doesn't do either of those things. Okay, one, two, wait, wait, wait. We first need to clarify, are you going to catch it on three or after three? After three. So one, two, three, and then throw, okay? Right, one, two, three. There you go. Yes! Now look. Behold. The old life. In tatters. Ruined. All over the floor. In a mess. Broken. Smashed. Of no value at all. And Gary cared about these things. And he said, I love these things. My preferences, my ambitions, my desires, my sexual orientation. All of those things. But I had to drop them to take hold of the thing that is more valuable than them all. And more valuable than anything could ever be. And I want to ask you, are you prepared to do the same thing? Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Jesus said. Unless you die, you cannot rise. Unless you bury, you cannot rise again to new life. Unless you drop all that you have, you cannot take hold of the free gift that costs you everything. We have a lot of songs that state this truth. We have a lot of songs that I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered. All I have is yours. For some of you, the place that sticks is sexuality. Whether you're gay, straight, whatever, you're not, you're not even sure. That's the, pl- that's the cost. All I have is yours. It sticks in your throat because you know that's what it may cost you. My favorite hymn that states this idea so well, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. 
In a moment, we're going to ask you if you're up for that. But it does cost you everything.